This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Richard Dijkstra. Welcome, you're listening to the Bell Media Podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. Today I'm speaking to writer, politician and environmentalist Stanley Johnson. He's worked at the World Bank and for the European Commission, he's been an MEP, is the author of 25 books and has also been a star of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here and stayed at the Real Marigold Hotel. One theme that has run throughout his career is a passionate concern for wildlife and the environment. He's received a Greenpeace Award for Outstanding Services to the Environment, has been an ambassador for the UN Environmental Protection Programme, and is the President Emeritus of the Guerrilla Organisation, the organisation that supports the work started by pioneering primatologist Diane Fossey and working to protect the remaining 1,000 or so gorillas living in the wild in the rainforests of Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Welcome, Stanley. So, Stanley, it's great to have you here for so many reasons, but partly you're here as you've recently re-released Virus. I think you wrote that a good few years ago, in the late 70s? Well, I did. I wrote it in the late 70s. In fact, it was originally called The Marburg Virus and published in, in the UK by by Heinemann, republished in the United States in 2015 under the title The Virus, and now it has been brought out by Black Spring Press in this country, this country being you know, the United Kingdom, again with the title The Virus. And I'm you know, very happy that they have been able to do so because you know, it is a pretty tropical story. And the story I told of what happened in in my imagination, way back in the in the seventies. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it a really fascinating story. I mean, obviously, at the moment we're in the this global pandemic, but what I thought was really interesting was the the actual genesis of this story, because as you say, it actually comes uh, out of a, a real instant, which I must admit I hadn't heard of before but it was uh, actually quite a frightening story in itself. Could you tell us a wee bit more about that? Yes, well, I'm going back to the 70s. I'd been a, an official of the European Commission, one of the very first, by the way, from this country when we joined, when Britain joined the EEC, as it then was, in, in 1973. I was sent to Brussels as the head of the Prevention of Pollution and Nuisances division. I was very interested and involved in the whole question of pollution control, health measures. And one of the things I came across, I was having lunch with a friend one day. I'd already written four novels, four thrillers, more or less environmental thrillers. And I was looking around for a a new topic. And a German friend, um, his name was Franz Froschmar, said, oh, well, why didn't you write about what happened in Marburg uh, a few years back? So I said, well, what happened in Marburg? He said, well, there was this outbreak of a a tremendous um, uh, problem, uh, a, a disease. Subsequently, it's been called the Marburg virus, and everybody who got it actually died. I mean, it had a, a virtually a hundred percent mortality rate. And I said, "Well, that sounds extremely interesting. Why hadn't why haven't we heard more about it?" And and he said, "Well, look, I think it all got hushed up a bit." Well, I went off almost the next day, certainly the next weekend, 
took my car from Brussels, drove. Uh, Marburg is not far from Frankfurt, it's on the line. And found this rather wonderful medieval old university town. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. And that old university town had a medical school. And I started digging around. And yes, I did discover that there had been an outbreak of a disease. A whole lot of medical students had caught it, and almost all of them had actually died. I think the figure was in the 20s, maybe 23, 24, something like that. So then I dug around a bit further. I said, well, why all from the medical school? And then you know, I came across a strange phenomenon, which was that in those old famous university towns, so we're talking about some of the oldest universities in Germany, if not in the world, they have what was called the dueling. Um, they would fight with swords to gain prestige. To, you know, a dueling club. I think the the German word was something like Schagende Verbindung. And this is where my fictional mind came in. I said, "Well, what if, what if one of those medical students, a member of a dueling fraternity, I think fraternity was the word they use, had been infected by a disease which he had." caught in the course of his work. What kind of disease might that have been? And then I discovered that, and not unusually for medical schools at that time, they were working on primates, primates imported from Africa in this particular case. They'd been working on monkeys imported from Central Africa. And I tracked it down, as it were, for the purposes of my novel, that the original infection had come from a green monkey imported into Marburg, into the medical laboratory, and probably that was the infected monkey. And then the student, who is also a member of the dueling fraternity, had had his cheek slashed, because that's what you do. You, you, you gain scars. You keep those scars for the rest of your life. They are marks of honor. He'd been slashed. His blood had spread, infected others, and that had been the beginning of the outbreak. And what was really remarkable about this, as I said, was the very high level of mortality. It was absolutely lethal. It was an aerosol. And, you know, we've been wondering now whether COVID-19 is spread through aerosol transmission as well as globules. Maybe, maybe it can be a sneeze could infect a crowded cinema. For the purposes of my book, I said, yes, this is one of the, one of the things which which is a characteristic of the Marburg virus. And that was the beginning of it. And then 10 years later, 10 years later, my hero, because my hero of the book is a, a man called Lowell Kaplan, who is an epidemiologist. Now we know about epidemiologists. He works for the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, the US very famous center. And he realizes evidence has come that there's been a new outbreak of this disease, the deadliest disease known to man. I'm struck with the fact that of your two central characters, one is working for the U.S. Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, and the other is an eco-warrior in the race to save the world. Yes, a, a, young, a young lady, in fact, a young lady. Yeah, I, I, think, I mean, it's interesting that given today's you know, political climate, the importance of international bodies and people with strong advocacy of conservation, you know, they seem to be two major themes in your life, but they seem to be areas of great political controversy at the moment. Well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, it's funny how... Uh, several of the novels I have written have, as it were, anticipated real events. Way back in 1968, for example, I wrote a book called Panther Jones for President, which is all about how a, a black man in America, a black black power advocate in America, actually became 
President of the United States, and I've written other other novels which have had similar um, environmental and ecological themes. And and yes, uh, it was it was it was good to have this Echo Warrior lady who is herself horrified that the thought that you know uh, the international community might decide as were to wipe out. Uh, a group of monkeys in Central Africa merely because they carried the the virus. And in the end, it becomes absolutely clear that what you can't afford to do is to wipe out in nature uh, virus carriers because they may, in the end, be precisely the group of animals you need if you are to develop effective vaccines. So there's, there's, there's this sort of complex. And then, of course, there's also a whole range of what you might call international skullduggery, because you're talking here high politics. Biological warfare was very much a theme way back in the 70s and 80s. Probably it's a theme now. So people who who know where a virus is and how to exploit it, of course, they have to be very careful. It doesn't backfire on them, uh, which is why the the possession of the vaccine is also crucial. So there's this this kind of element in the book as well. Exactly. So, I mean, it's described as a Cold War thriller, and of course, although you know we thought that the Cold War has kind of disappeared, we seem to be coming into another era of power blocks facing up to each other and trying to destabilize each other. And so, perhaps again, as you say, that I suppose history kind of repeats itself, but not quite the same way. Well, and now uh, it remains to be seen what the origin of the COVID nineteen is, and there's a lot of controversy. About that, I merely read this morning about some um, Chinese researcher who has now sought refuge in the United States um, for reasons which are not quite clear, but apparently to do with the fact that she exposed, as she thought, you know, the origin of the Wuhan, the Wuhan virus, and, and and she'd been told to shut up in a big way. Oh, okay. In- interesting. Well, obviously, watch the space on that. Anyway, as I say, that you better not tell me any more about the virus, or you'll be spoiling my uh, bedtime reading. Uh, so, moving on to kind of other things in your life, that one of the things that I do know, obviously, is that India seems to have held a bit of a fascination for you. And obviously, I think your last visit might have been two years ago at the Rio Marigold Hotel. But I think you first went there in the early sixties. Is that right? By motorbike. Yeah, you are absolutely right. My first trip to India, and it was some trip, was um, by motorcycle, yes, in the summer of 1961. Uh, I decided with two friends that we would try to follow Marco Polo's route all the way across Europe through Asia, hopefully to get as far as what Marco Polo called Zanadu, but which nowadays is called Beijing. Well, we didn't. Um, get as far as, as China. We couldn't get through from Afghanistan into China. Uh, we were late. We were, had to get back for our Oxford term anyway. The snows had fallen on the Pamir Mountains, which was our route into China. We didn't have a Chinese visa. Uh, but what we did instead do was drive down the Grand Trunk Road, the GT Road, as they call it, from Kabul or Kabul in uh, Afghanistan, through the Khyber Pass, down through Pakistan, and then into India at um, Amritsar, and then right on down the Grand Trunk Road, bypassing Delhi, Agra, um, on to Lahore, Cornwall, ending up in Calcutta. So yes, that was my first experience of India, 
came back in eventually via Bombay. But I've been back in India many times since then. And actually, yes, you mentioned the Marigold Hotel. That was, of course, a couple of years ago when we spent a month mainly based in Udaipur. But I was there again last year and the year before. Um, in, in 2018, I was there biking for tigers, an uh, organization called Travel Operators um, for Tigers. And the idea was to try and construct or encourage the, the, the construction of tiger corridors so that tigers could move from one national park to another. Because one thing you absolutely have to do is to try and provide some connectivity between the tiger reserves. Otherwise, you run into tremendous trouble. And so we had a most wonderful time, maybe a dozen of us, on some fairly good bicycles, biking from Pench, which I think is in, in Madhya Pradesh, um, to Takana, another national park. And again, I was there last year um, uh, looking at some parts of India I didn't know. So a, a wonderful country. Of course, for me, India is, is politically so tremendously important um, as it's one of the main players in what you might call the world effort to deal with with climate change, because without China and without India, you know, we're not going to get very far. Yeah, okay, well, perhaps we'll come on to that in a minute or so, but back to your trip, I mean, that you're just saying that, well, I, I did this bike trip, but as far as I understand it, it's about 200 kilometres that you were having to to pedal, uh, and, uh, and I'm told that you did most of it in one gear, is that right? Oh, no, I don't know about that. No, I had a fantastically good... Fantastically good American-made bicycle. I think it was called Trek, something like T-R-E-K. And I wouldn't say no, put it this way. I realized that there were gears on both sides of the handlebars, if you see what I mean. I don't think I ever mastered what went on on the, on the, on the left-hand side. <laughs> but but even, the, even if you just used the gears on the right-hand side, you, you, you had a pretty good machine to play with. Yeah, fair, uh, fair enough. Uh, uh, and so in terms of actually going through these tiger reserves, did, did you see many tigers? Uh, on that occasion, no. Um, but I have seen tigers in India on, on several occasions over the years. Um, I all, by the way, I've also not seen tigers on several occasions over the years. I mean, you are, you're lucky to see tigers when you go to India. I've seen tigers in, in Rantambur. I've seen tigers in, in Bandavgarh. I failed to see tigers in quite a few other places, including, by the way, spending a week not in India but in in Bangladesh, where I was in the Sundarbans looking for the tigers, which do live in that strange um, mangrove-type ecosystem which borders both India and uh, Bangladesh. Well, you, uh, you said that you were lucky enough to see some, some tigers in uh, Banthamgar. Yes. Uh, Banthamgar is actually uh, where I saw my first tiger. And I have to say, I had been to five other tiger parks before that, before I actually did see one. And, you know, my tiger books are actually based on Banthamgar, really. Are they? Well, Banthamgar, that's interesting. Um, I've read your tiger books, of course. We're talking about Tigeropolis. Um, and these are these are wonderful books. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman who was um, uh, was his name Drew Drew Singh something like that who was running Band of Band of Gar. Um, it was a wonderful wonderful place. Nowadays, of course, I'm a little bit worried about the the way elephants are still being used. Uh, I think the, 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 I'm, I'm also a, one of the founder members of a, of a body called Save the Asian Elephant. And there is a huge amount of uh, abuse involved in, as it were, tourism, which does involve elephants. And Save the Asian Elephant is now 
lobbying the government hard to try and bring in some regulations dealing with the way in which British tour operators um, exploit facilities which exploit captive elephants. So this is this is something which you do believe has to stop. And looking back at my time in Bandavgar, I do seem to remember, and you can correct me because you might remember this better, I seem to remember that one of the rides I took was indeed on the back of an elephant and looking down at a, at a tiger in the long grass. Right, yes. that uh, I've certainly seen elephants uh, in the parks, but not actually seen people on them. I think that they also do, though, use them for sort of anti-poaching patrols and things like that occasionally as well, don't they? Yes, one of the, one of the problems here is that the way uh, these young elephants captured in the wild, uh, they are subjected to the most merciless training. It's called Pajan, and it is absolutely intoler- intolerably brutal. And it is something which it shames me that the British tourists, UK tourists, do play a part in this. I have to say, I have actually uh, seen some uh, wild elephants where we were uh, in one of the the old kind of colonial style uh, rest house uh, bungalows in one of the buffer areas. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was pitch black. We had no electricity or anything like that in the area. And suddenly we uh, we just heard this crashing and banging noise and just couldn't understand what was going on. <laughs> and, you know, we eventually went out and, you know, couldn't see anything in the dark. But what we were aware of was it was basically a herd of elephants just kind of moving past uh, and just, just uh, knocking anything down that happened to get in their way. For something that you couldn't see anything on, it was actually an amazing spectacle. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on a wee bit again on to tigers, I guess. Uh, I also understand that you were at the the big global tiger summit that uh, President Putin held in St. Petersburg. Uh, I think you were there as an ambassador for the UN Environmental Protection Programme at the time. No, well, it was an extraordinary place, um, extraordinary place in Petersburg. I've been there a couple of times. But this was a wonderful meeting because President Putin really put his heart and soul into this, and he, I think, he stayed at the meeting for the whole of the meeting, maybe two or three days. He was co-chairing the meeting with the then president of the World Bank, um, Bob Zelik, and he managed to get the heads of the uh, of, of the so-called Tiger Range states. I would have thought we had we got very high-level representation from from China, from Bangladesh, from India. Um, it was an absolute triumph, and what that meeting did was come up with a tiger conservation plan, and um, that was an important one. Crucially, of course, it means that organizations like the World Bank and the Global Environmental Facility have to continue you know, to push on these things, even when there's a change of leadership at the top. Nobody can deny the absolute essential need to press on with tiger conservation in a big way. I mean, tiger numbers do seem to be increasing, at least in India uh, at the moment. But I think uh, I remember that you referred to this actually in your book uh, where the wild things were. Uh, but one of the things there you mentioned was that you thought that uh, President Putin's commitment really came from the fact that he had personally visited and spent quite a long time in uh, a tiger reserve in Russia's Far East. And you seem to suggest, you know, it was that personal connection that had actually really made things then happen. And the kind of same thing seems to be the case in how Project Tiger in India 
took hold when Indira Gandhi basically took this on as a kind of personal mission. Uh, do you think that there, that is really something that has to be learned, that really that you have to get leaders personally involved in these things to actually make any real progress? Well, it's not necessarily sufficient to get the leaders involved. You still have to get in our country, at least in a parliamentary, parliamentary action. I mean, my own uh, oldest son, Boris, has you know, exercised quite a lot of leadership, uh, certainly as far as the elephant issue is concerned. And I think he'll pursue this um, on, on, on tigers. Um, it, definitely, it definitely helps. And if, if, of course, if, if you have a country which is dominated by one a man, as indeed Russia is, then of course his own personal involvement is is totally crucial. You might say the involvement of the Russian Parliament is is less crucial. As far as India is concerned, yes, I think that India, India, India Gandhi's involvement in Project Tiger was was brilliant. I so Indira Gandhi's uh, personal involvement, as I understand it, really that you know she. Uh, is you know, governing a country where obviously uh, the states themselves were also very powerful, but she was such a force of personality that she was able to basically turn around and make this a kind of an all India issue, which really you know everybody had to get behind. And although you know there's obviously it takes a, a time to actually change things in the ground, the reality is that over the years things have gradually improved. And now, say, we seem to be in a situation where tigers have gone from about 1,200 or so, I think it was now at one point thought to be as low as that, up to more like about 2,500. Well, it's a pretty tragic situation even now, isn't it? I mean, in the sense that if you consider that at the turn of the, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the tiger population in India might have been as, as high as. 100,000 is a pretty tragic situation that we are congratulating ourselves if, you know, we manage to edge it up from 1,500 to 2,000 or 2,500. No, there is a very long way to go. And that is indeed why I was doing my bicycle ride, amongst other things. Because what we absolutely have to realize is you uh, must, as it were, enlarge the amount of area which tigers can live and thrive in. And if that means also involving uh, the, the people, uh, the, the Indian villages, so that they don't regard tigers as a threat and as a competition, but finding ways where they can live together so the tigers really do have useful corridors between one reserve and another. That is absolutely vital. And, and one of the things which this project was doing was actually offering compensation to um, Indian families who had lost livestock you know, as a result of tiger activities. Yeah, yes, as I understand it, uh, it's also kind of facilitating the fact that the compensation, I think, is often available from government sources, but it's very difficult to actually get the villagers to get access to that. And they were basically facilitating that to make sure that they would actually be able to uh, get the compensation instead of what often that happens is that the villagers go off and say well that tiger's killed uh, our cattle so we are going to uh, poison the uh, I know you are so right so this the, this this people animal conflict and how to solve that is is really at the heart of further measures to protect and expand the tiger tiger populations in India absolutely vital I mean, I think that these are kind of themes which seem to be almost universal. Most of then takes me on to your book of a few years ago, where the wild things were, 
which I thought was a very interesting book because it seemed to be a kind of revisiting themes in places that you'd written about over the past 20, 30 years and kind of seeing, you know, what had changed in some places changed uh, for the better. Some places things hadn't gone quite so well. Uh, Looking back at this, uh, are there any uh, memorable experiences uh, that you've had watching wildlife? Oh, there have been so many. And you, you, you rightly mentioned that book I wrote where the wild things were. The, the clue was in the title because it was a rather famous book called Where the Wild Things Are. Well, I think that day when I was in the Sea of Cortez, which is just off um, the, the Gulf of California in, in Baja, to see about 20 blue whales one day, one after another, in that, in that um, quite, quite, quite restricted area. Yeah, and that was the most wonderful one. What other? Um, after, oh, well, then I was one day I was trekking in, in China. I think it was called the, the Hutong National Park in, in, in Shanxi. And I saw not, not just one panda, but four pandas. One panda was a female panda high up in the tree, and three male pandas had gathered and were circling in the tree, waiting to see if the female panda would, would come down. Uh, and then, of course, I think the first time the first time you see a, a big silverback gorilla in the wild, that came that for me, that was around about 2008. I was in the eastern Congo. I was in the Kahuzi Biega National Park. We, you know, we were with some armed guards because it's not a very uh, safe area to be. And we were hacking our way with the machetes through the jungle. And suddenly this great, huge, must have been a 350-kilogram male um, burst into view. And that was the most extraordinary, extraordinary sight, and I described that. The idea was not to make yourself obvious, so my guide said, you know, keep down, keep down. And then he said, don't let, don't let him see your silver, your, your blonde hair. He may think you're another silverback. <laughs> right, okay, uh, so muscling in in his territory. Yeah, which probably probably wouldn't have been a very good thing. I mean, I think when you said you were with armed guards, I mean the the guards weren't really there to protect you against the silverback, were they? They'd be no, no, no. They were they were they were protected against the other sort of guerrilla warfare which was going on in Eastern Congo at that time, and still, by the way, does go on. You know, these are not particularly safe areas to work in. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, I am the on president of the guerrilla organization, and we are working in the Eastern Congo and, of course, in Uganda and in Rwanda. And uh, these are not easy, easy moments. And you know, we, we have had guards who have been killed. Obviously, uh, it's a difficult uh, at the best of times, but uh, with COVID as well, that a lot of the money that goes into these areas actually comes from uh, tourism and the permits to go and see gorillas and things like this and presumably all of that stopped at the moment so what's happening on the ground very good point there and uh, what you have to remember is uh, is this question of the transmission of disease zoonosis whatever the word is it's not just the in the direction of animals to man you can have it the other way around too man to animals so yes the tourism has an indeed um been stopped at the moment. I think that's perfectly right because it's no good getting close to a gorilla if you can. Well, of course, in the old days you would give a you would give it a cold as well, but giving it in a coronavirus is maybe worse. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, that one of the things about that uh, pandemic at the moment is that I think it has made us all have a bit of uh, time for reflection about how the world is 
changing and what we've done to the planet and trade-offs and things like this. Is there anything that you think is you know we should be optimistic about in what's been happening and our ability to kind of rethink how we approach the world? Well, I think you could be optimistic and you could say this this COVID nineteen episode, this coronavirus episode, and it has given us a moment to pause to rethink: Will the world which emerges from coronavirus be a different world? Will we, for example, seize the opportunities we now have to reformulate our industrial basis, you know, really move towards you know sustainable energy platforms and so on and so forth, change the agricultural practices where where we can. I would say that, that there's some real possibilities here. If you look at it in terms of the, the carbon budget, I haven't yet seen you know, the, the detailed calculations, but I can't help thinking that the impact of the economic downturn must, as it were, have given us a tiny bit more breathing space in terms of that carbon budget than we, than we anticipated. Do you see what I mean? I, I, haven't, as I, say, I haven't seen the figures, but I can't believe that we, had, we will not have seen uh, a, a fall off in at least the rate of increase of some of uh, some of the CO two emissions over the last years, so so th- uh, this year we should have had uh, COP twenty six, the climate conference in Glasgow, but that of course has now been postponed until next year to no- November twenty twenty one. So perhaps uh, that is going to be actually a good thing that is giving us a bit more time to to think about uh, what should be happening. Uh, do you think that these summits really can achieve what is needed? Well, if you consider it took almost 30 years to get from October 1986, which was the first meeting of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, to the Paris meeting of December 2015, which produced the you know so-called Paris Convention. Well, that was a lot of time, a huge amount of time. And the other thing you have to say is, is that convention... Is it up to the, is it up to the job? You could say it's the only thing we've got at the moment, and that is true. But it is a voluntary convention. The so-called uh, indicative national emission reductions, whatever they're called, they're voluntary. The convention is in real trouble in the sense that the Americans are, uh, are pulling out. One of the issues I think will have to be, as you look at the rescheduled COP26, rescheduled for Glasgow again, is whether or not you need to add another element to that convention, which you might say is the carbon tax element. And the essence of that would be to legitimize trade barriers, which can be implemented legally in WTO terms if if one country is, as it were, exploiting carbon-intensive industries without taking into account um, the effect of, of its emissions. Do you see what I mean? Uh, whereas another country might might have a, a big carbon reduction program. So what I'm trying to get at is that there has to be something like a, a kind of agreed carbon tax level. If a country is not doing that, then it, it, must, it must face trade barriers. What has to be brought into the Paris thing is the element of, of, of hearting element of, of teeth here. And, and, and that is going to require I think, some changes in our thinking, particularly in WTO terms. 
Right, so it's, it's possible that the extra year and the kind of changes that have been thrown up by COVID-19 might actually allow a bit more time for these ideas to uh, gain a bit more currency then. That's right. We, we, I, did, I did suppose this time between now and November 2021 to you know, uh, agree this extra economic element I was talking about, but at least we could we could get the ball rolling fairly efficiently. So I'm just actually also thinking, and you were kind of mentioning it there, that you know perhaps there's actually a bit of a lesson from your book as well in all these things. Uh, your book was a virus was uh, written in what's it seventy eight seventy nine. The events that actually inspired it happened in sixty seven. I think the first. UN Environmental Conference was probably, what, about 72 or something like that? It was, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a kind of common thread about events that were first outlined, you know, 40-odd years ago, but not initially given enough attention by politicians because of their understandable concerns about immediate short-term problems. But actually, all these kind of underlying issues have this remarkable tendency to you know bite back with a vengeance, so they you know they can't be ignored and swept under the carpet. Well, in another month or two, Richard, in another month or two, um, this same publisher, which is um, as I mentioned, Black Spring, is going to bring out another book of mine, which has also been published in America, republished in America, called The Warming, and that is a thriller I've written about global warming, which again is you know a good adventure thriller. Uh, involved uh, in trying to solve global warming. In this particular case, I'm I'm imagining that some of the rocks which Captain Scott brought back from Antarctica do indeed uh, in, in, in include or contain the matching ingredient you need to deal with global warming. Anyway, that's another thriller which is on the which is on the stocks and will be out another month or two. Okay, well, perhaps uh, that's a a great place to close. Thank you for being with me today. It was a real pleasure to hear your story, Stanley. Uh, I should just say that the virus is available from all good bookshops and online from Watson's and Amazon. And as, of course, from Tigers, well, you know that my Tigeropolis books, you can find them in bookstores and Amazon and uh, at scotlandbymail.com. So thank you for listening to Books and Stories. The studio production was by Perrin Sledge. I'm Richard Dijkstra. Hope you'll join us next time. Bye for now. <laughs>